Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And a donkey was, in the ancient world, a symbol of peace. He didn't ride in on a horse, which would have been symbolic of war, but he rode in on a donkey, symbolic of peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's called that by the prophet Isaiah, the one who would usher in peace, not from man to man, but from man to God. We need peace with God. Obviously, we need peace with ourselves and peace with others also. But ultimately, we need to be reconciled to God, and Jesus paid that. He made that possible. Romans 5 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As he enters Jerusalem, you know the story. He is surrounded by people holding up palm branches, and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And those palm branches actually were symbolic of victory because many of them believed that Christ had come to usher them in to the victory from the Roman oppression. And remember, this was just a short time after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so they saw his power. They saw him heal people supernaturally. They saw his miracles. And so they said, this man is coming to deliver us from the hands of the Romans and from our oppression here. His many miracles there. He obviously turned the water into wine and at the wedding in Cana and Galilee. You know, I was thinking of the people that were placing the palm branches down before Jesus. And again, they were uh, symbolic of victory and all. And, and you know, I was thinking about the end times when the Antichrist, a man, a person, not the Antichrist spirit, although he will culminate in the fullness of that Antichrist spirit, but that man who will come and, and show himself and obviously will go into there, into the temple and all, and declare himself as God, is there'll be many people that will follow after him blindly. They'll just follow right on behind him. <clears throat> and so we see people following along, and yet... They haven't really, I guess, thought through what this actually means. Because the people here believed in Jesus to have mighty powers and that he could lead them to a powerful political victory. And we're the same way today, aren't we? We believe that somehow that we keep our focus upon, well, politics. Maybe to you and I, maybe we look at it and we say, well, politics is getting a little bit better now. And yet you keep looking at it and it seems like it's getting worse. And sometimes we keep our eyes on the natural and we don't keep our eyes on the spiritual. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says we keep our eyes on those things that are unseen, not those things that are seen because those things that are unseen are obviously eternal. Those things that are seen are temporary. We need to be able to see with spiritual discerning eyes in this time. One of the greatest gifts, I believe, is discernment that the Christian should have today. Discernment, whether or not, obviously, the things that are being taught are biblical and the thing you're walking with Jesus each and every day because we have a deceiver. We have the father of all lies constantly peppering us. He came to kill us, destroy us, to get rid of us, to destroy anything in our lives that's even looking like God. He wants to do that to you and to me. He wants to destroy marriages. He wants to destroy churches. He wants to destroy families. And he will do anything 
from, from trying to keep us from entering into the inheritance that Jesus has for you and me. He will do it. And so we need to be discerning. And the people during this particular time had their eyes in the wrong place. They weren't looking at themselves saying, Lord, come and change me. You need to change that person over there. We need to ask God to change our hearts and to make us more like Jesus. And stop looking at everybody else, obviously. We can pray for people. We need to. But the ultimate is, is you and I individually need to get right before the Lord. And our eyes need to be kept on Jesus. Now, Luke's gospel tells us that the Pharisees, y'all remember the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're standing around watching all of this go on. And they demand that Jesus silence his disciples, remember? In Luke chapter 19. And Jesus responds with a real um, remark saying, I'll tell you this, he said, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You remember they said, look, y'all pipe down. You're talking too much about Jesus. You're becoming a little bit too fanatical here about him because he's declaring himself. He's king and all. He's going to come in and he's going to disrupt our party here. So y'all need to pipe down a little bit. Jesus came back with a good remark. He said, if they stop shouting and praising and glorifying my name, then the very stones and rocks will cry out. Now, I want you to note here, Jesus is making this remark to remind his hearers that all of creation was made to worship God. I'm talking about all of creation was made to worship God. In Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And this was the moment in which God had decreed that Christ's kingship would be declared to the world. Perfect timing. The time when crucifixion was in play. The worst type of execution. And obviously, today they don't want to, uh, uh, when there's a death penalty... You know, they make every excuse about, well, I don't want that needle going in and giving me an IV of that particular drug that will kill me and so forth because it's inhumane. Let me tell you, crucifixion was inhumane. And yet God sent forth his son in the fullness of time, Galatians says. He was born at exactly the right time. And all of this is happening according to God's timetable. Jesus was going to Calvary to die for the sins of the world. If the people didn't declare this truth, the very created elements would declare it and praise his holy name. If you and I don't praise Jesus and glorify his name and live for him, then God can raise up whatever he wants to praise his holy name. And this special moment in history was not just planned that day. It had been a part of the plan of God from the beginning of all creation, knowing that God would send forth his son. Eternity passed, looking forward to the cross. There had to be a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And it's prophesied here in many ways, even through the other chapters in the book of Zechariah here. So when we look at this, I want to look at several things I think so important, relevant to this time of the year but also to our lives each and every day. I pray God would just impart that to your heart as he sees fit. You know, the prophet Zechariah lived at a time in Israel's history which is filled with significance. The Jews had been in exile since they had been captured and taken into captivity by the Babylonians in 586 
B.C. Remember, 586, 586 years before Jesus was born. And under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, they had been allowed to return to Jerusalem to rebuild and restore their nation. There were many obstacles that were standing in their way to rebuild there. And obviously, these people had their morale shaken. They were discouraged at that point. So Zechariah comes to the people of Israel to provide them with words of exhortation and encouragement. You know, I think of God in this manner with all respect and honor. He's like a coach. You know, and the people of Israel, or his team, you know, the coach is going in at halftime. And, and they're, they're behind in the game on the scoreboard. They're behind, and they go in there, you know, they go in and do that. And I don't know what y'all watched here. It was a couple weeks ago here, North Carolina and Gonzaga. Remember, y'all see it? Uh, I love uh, the college basketball, especially when you get down to the, the last ones. I mean, they play, in a lot of cases, really good basketball. I played basketball in high school and a little bit in college and so forth. And so they really do play good. And, and North Carolina, if you remember, was down when they went in at halftime. You remember? Well, what happened? I wasn't feeling good because of all this sign and stuff. And we were sitting there, and I told Cindy, I said, I'm going to bed early. It was my halftime. North Carolina's down. They weren't doing anything. They weren't. Uh, <clears throat> Gonzaga was shooting the lights out of it. And I said, they're going to lose. I'm kind of North Carolina. I was born in North Carolina, so I'm kind of for North Carolina, okay? I'm a Tar Heel in that way. And so I went to bed. Got up in the morning, turned the TV on, and they said, North Carolina won. I said, what happened? As I looked into it, is that actually what happened was North Carolina on the second half got really hot and started hitting all the baskets. Gonzaga got cold. Okay? And so Zachariah is like that coach going in at halftime. And he wants to build their morale, their confidence, the people at this time. The rebuild Jerusalem is waning. So he provides them with a word to encourage their confidence. He gives them this word here. And he's given prophetic words all along. And their confidence to get them to move forward. You know, we need that every now and then. And even as I just spoke about it, that word, obviously asking God to confirm that word about, Lord, the drought that some of you have been feeling because of, of just the hard things in life. And there seemed to be one thing after the other. There seemed to be nothing working for you. And when God says the drought is over, I'm getting ready to pour out water, symbolic of the Spirit of the Lord to give you encouragement. And in 2 Corinthians, it says he refers of God as the, as the God of all comfort. But that word comfort in the Greek actually means encouragement also. The God of all encouragement. And it seems like, don't you know, haven't you experienced this? That just at the right time, when you were down in the dumps, when everything was going bad, your morale was down, and it was halftime in your life. And yet God comes along and he does something to say, I'm still with you. Keep on going. Don't give up. Don't throw the towel in. North Carolina didn't throw the towel in, did they? And they won the game. Well, I know who wins the game. And if we're believers in Jesus, we win the game. Because Jesus has already won the game for us. Amen. If we'll just walk in that victory, amen? amen. And so that's what God does. And Zechariah was doing it for the people at that particular time, exactly the right time. And that's why at times I say, Lord, give us a prophetic word here, a word of encouragement, exhortation, comfort for your people. And many times God will do that. He just loves us that much. I've, within these words of encouragement from Zechariah are found some of the most profound messianic prophecies in Scripture. 
There are eight very specific messianic prophecies in these 14 chapters there. He's given the people insight into the truth that all of this history that they're living out is leading up to something of major revelational and historical significance. He's saying something's going to happen here, folks. Pay attention here. I was thinking about this when I put this down. Maybe God, in one way or another, is somehow giving us a heads up to something so spiritual, significantly, that's going to happen in our lifetime. Do you believe it? Do you believe Jesus could come back at any time? You know, I look for his coming. I look, one hand on the plow, I've always said, and one eye looking up for his return at any time. Maybe God is preparing you and I for something so significant in history. We need to have that hope down deep in our hearts. And let me tell you, God works that. The bride, I believe, is being prepared to obviously meet the groom. The bride being the church. The groom being Jesus. You know, I I can't wait for, obviously, the wedding supper of the Lamb. I can't wait to sit down at the table with Jesus. Can you? Jesus is saying this today. Be prepared. And what he's doing in our lives, trust me, he's pruning us. He's pruning us. You know, like you ladies know especially, because obviously you have uh, the roses and all and the different plants, and you go out and prune them. You clip them back. And, 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 And the new growth comes in. It seems like that new growth is more vibrant, more beautiful and all, you know. And, and, and during the, the real cold weather back in December, remember that? We only had, what, about three or four days? Remember, it was really cold. I didn't have any heater at that time. Y'all remember me telling you? All right. And my Seiko palm out front died. I've never seen a Seiko palm die. The leaves turn yellow or the, the branches, you know how they come up? They're beautiful. I love them. And I went, well, is there any chance for this thing to come back? And uh, the guy that works with us on the lawn and all that, he said, I don't take and clip them back. Let's see what happens. It looks like me. It's gone, though, Jim. You may have to replace it. You want me to replace it? I said, no, nah, leave the stub there. I looked at it the other day, and here those branches are coming back. All it was was a nub, but it's coming back. Here we go. He's pruning us so that new life, new branches in your life and my life. And he's saying, this has got to go. We've held on to some things in our lives that God is saying today. Hey, they've got to go. They can't remain there anymore. But because he's pouring this water out, this, the spirit of the Lord out, he'll come in and he'll take those things away. Maybe habits, maybe things you've done and all this. And you're just going, Lord, get rid of this out of my life. And God's spirit comes along and he takes those clippers and he prunes you back. Because he's getting a bride ready, isn't he? There's a king coming. A righteous saving king who will bring the blessings of the Lord to his people. He was doing it the first time. He's going to do it again. And Zechariah says, rejoice greatly. Look at that word to begin with. Rejoice there. He says that there is to be great excitement and joy accompanied by rejoicing and shouting at the coming of the king. But why is that? Israel had seen many kings come and go. But after Saul, David, and Solomon, the kingdom had split into the northern and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom being Israel, which had only evil kings after Solomon. And the southern kingdom, having had a few good kings, but also having experienced many evil ones also. Why do we need another king? Why rejoice in another king there? Because this king would be different than those who preceded him. Zechariah tells us these differences. 
And he gives us three reasons why we rejoice over our king. First of all, is the righteousness of our king. Zechariah says here, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. The Hebrew word which means just and lawful here. And it is the antithesis of wicked. When we consider the word righteous, we've got to understand here what it actually means. There are different contexts to the word righteous. Noah was called a righteous man. Genesis chapter 6 says, There are the generations, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And so the context of his righteousness is an obvious comparison of the wickedness of those in the world at that time, his generation. At the same time, the word tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. And it seems like that's contradicting. The righteousness which Paul is speaking of is perfect righteousness, which belongs to God alone. Jesus said, there's only one who is good. When correcting the rich young ruler, Matthew chapter 19, the goodness he was referring to is perfect goodness, God's goodness. And when Zechariah is talking about the king was righteous, he's talking about perfect righteousness here, not comparative righteousness. You know, there were many kings that had comparative righteousness. David, obviously, compared to Saul, he was righteous, certainly there. But he's talking about true righteousness, which this king would possess. Righteousness worth rejoicing over. This is a quality which applies solely and uniquely to Christ alone. I'm leading up to something. Track with me just a moment. Christ kept the law of God perfectly. He not only did he avoid evil, he also did good. He maintained the law of God and thought, Word and deed. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Christ is the God-man. Thus he, he is perfection incarnate. He's the only righteous king who has ever existed and the only one who could fulfill this prophecy. The true blessing is that our king gives us that righteousness, perfect righteousness as a gift. Pastor Les said it good this morning. He imputes that righteousness to us. Real simply, he gives it to us. I mean, not going into theology and all that, but he gives us that right, perfect righteousness. Before a holy God. When God sees us, he sees us like he does Jesus. Because we've been clothed in his righteousness. We've taken the old garments off and now we have the new garments on. The new garment of righteousness. And Christ credits to our account the righteousness that he alone has. Showing his benevolence as our righteous king. 1 Corinthians 1. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption there. (laughs) Philippians 3. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. As the hymn writer puts it like this. Listen, y'all know this one. 
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Y'all know that old hymn, don't you? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Now, I tell you what, that's worth something shouting about, okay? That's something rejoicing. He said, rejoice, rejoice. We're talking about these things that God has given to you and I, and we're no more deserving of it. We're deserving of damnation and hell, but God sent forth his son, born of a woman, in the fullness of time, redeemed his people from under the law. Because we couldn't save ourselves. And God is saying today, we can have to rejoice over that. What a wonderful blessing. We rejoice in our righteous king because it is his righteousness which calls us to stand before God as righteous. Because we stand dressed in his righteousness and not our own. I'm so glad of that. Isn't that encouraging? I'm telling you. Oh, I know my faults. I know them. God knows them. Some other people know them. Many of them. Some of the ones are hidden back here. And yet God looks at us and says, Jim, you've been clothed in Jesus as my son's righteousness because I have, because you have faith in him, because I credited you as righteousness. I've put it in your account. It's there. Stand on it. Believe it. And that's why I say, obviously, in Ephesians 6, it's so important to put on the full armor of God on a regular basis. You know what it says? Paul says, our war is not against flesh and blood, but against powers of darkness and principalities and evil ones in the heavenlies. And he goes on to say, and put on, obviously, gird your loins with the, with the belt of truth. Truth, not the lies. You believe the truth. And he says, what does he say? He says, put, up, hold, put on the breastplate of righteousness. My son's righteousness. He said, put on the shoes of peace. He said, hold up the shield of faith, which extinguishes all the flaming arrows of the evil one. He said, put on the helmet of salvation. Helmet, of, I'm saved by the grace of God. I have the mind of Christ. And then he says, will the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Will it, use it. Because the word of God is truth. Today, remember Pilate was looking at Jesus. I always love this. And Pilate's wife said, don't mess with that man. Something's wrong. Something's not right here. I, I'm getting a check here. Don't mess with him and so forth. And Pilate being bullheaded and basically being bowled over by the desires of the people, he looked at Jesus. And remember what he said? He said, what is truth? And he was looking at truth. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except by me, through me. Truth, righteous. Second thing, look what he says. The salvation of our king. Christ saves us by not only taking the penalty for our sins, but by crediting us with his righteousness. His perfect righteousness is what makes him uniquely qualified to be our savior. A term that you hear in the Christian circles are, are you saved? Are you saved? You want to get saved? You want to get saved there? 
When I got saved, and uh, is he saved? All that. What does it mean to be saved? Because there are lots of varying pencil, uh, certain uh, opinions about that. What does it mean by that? Let me, let me tell you what it means. A man wrote a book with this title, talked about demonstrate the answer to this question. When we talk about being saved, we're talking about being saved from hell, which means we're being saved from judgment, which means we're being saved from God. We're being saved because we're under the wrath of God. And when we're saved, we are saved from the wrath of God because we, without Christ, are children of wrath. We are spiritually dead and rebellious against the very creator and deserving of his righteous judgment. But instead of leaving us in this dead condition to rot in our earthly bodies until we are cast into the lake of fire, Jesus saved us from the wrath of God. Hallelujah. Praise his name throughout all eternity. He took our punishment, saving us from being the just recipients of the wrath of God. We have, we're without excuse, Romans chapter 1 said. We've seen it. And there are people today that says, I will not believe you. And I will not, obviously, say, bow my knee, bow my heart to this man called Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. I will not, I will not, I will not. And they're under the wrath of God. And you, you and I know people like that today. They pay nothing attention about, to God at all. We need to be saved. And we need to understand what that means. Our biggest need is not to be saved physically. Our biggest need is not to be saved emotionally. Our biggest need, and get this, is not to be saved politically, okay? (laughs) Our biggest need is not who's in the White House. Our biggest need is to be saved from eternity and saved from the wrath of God. And obviously, as a result... We rejoice in him. That's what he's saying. We rejoice in the salvation of our king. Now the last. The humility of our king. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. See, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a donkey. We've already noted the animal Jesus was riding on in. He, it represented peace. And this is an earthly expression of his amazing humility. But don't let us forget that the humility of Christ is far deeper than just that riding in on that donkey. Obviously, deeper humility than any earthly expression. Christ is God incarnate. The very fact that he came to earth is an act of utter humiliation. The very fact that he was born there, way beyond just coming to earth, not just being born in a stinky manger, just his willingness to enter into his own creation, to fellowship with his create, with his people, with the people, is an act of complete condescension. And understanding the true act of Christ's humility is best expressed, I believe, Philippians chapter two. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name 
so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Christ humbled himself, not just by being born in a manger, but being born at all. He humbled himself, not just by riding in on a donkey, but by entering into his creation at all. He humbled himself not just by going to the shameful death, but by submitting himself to a human existence so that he could taste death on our behalf of his people. The humility is far deeper than you could ever imagine. He humbled himself. His righteousness perfectly, which he gives to us. His salvation, he saves us. He humbled himself. And I believe one of the greatest things that you and I can do as followers of Jesus is to humble ourselves. Ask God, humble me, dear Lord. Help me to see you. Because so often proud pride rises up in our hearts. And it takes over because we know that's what got Satan cast out of heaven. Pride. The incarnation is the greatest act of humility in all of history. Our king came down from his heavenly throne for us. And obviously, we should never cease to rejoice. Amen. Never cease. Never stop thanking him. Never stop praising him at all. So the king has come. Now what? The prophet says, rejoice and shout. For your king is coming to you. How do we receive this king? Now, the people of Israel received him with the branches... There laid the palm branches, and then not more than five days later, they rejected him. This is obviously similar, I believe, to a lot of people who come to church on Sunday, and then on Monday, they've forgotten all about living for Jesus. All right? That sounds familiar. It looked like, God, I, boy, that's good. I, I, I got a little bit out of what was being said in worship or whatever, but... We forget all about it. We forget all about it and how we treat our neighbors. How we treat the people in, in the marketplace. We forget all about it for those people who maybe obviously are persecuting you. And Jesus said to bless them. Yeah, I don't feel like blessing them. Are you kidding me? Show me where that is scripturally and I might. I might consider it. Look in the Bible, is in there. We didn't want Jesus, did we? Nothing in us that would be attractive to Jesus. He just loved us. He's God. And he loves you and I. And he loves us. And he came, laid his life down. Obviously, the problem with the world is that many people think they can have Jesus as their Savior, but not as Lord. Wait a minute now. I need my time because I work real hard. I put a lot of time in, and I'm tired at the end of the week. I don't need to go to church. Church doesn't save you. No, I don't get saved. I'm going, you're right. Church doesn't save you. But you come so you can grow in Christ. You come because you can learn and you can grow. More powers released in, on this place here, I guarantee, on this corner of 3rd Street in League City, Texas, than some of the biggest atomic bombs you've ever imagined from the teaching of God's Word. I believe that. Not because of anything in me, but by the Spirit of the Lord. Exploding in people's hearts, touching people's hearts today. The Word of God is powerful, it says, living, active. 
sharper than a double-edged sword. And people stay away from it the minute they start sinning and they hide just like Adam did, remember? And God said, where are you? Adam, like, <laughs> I can hide from God. Well, he was foolish, wasn't he? And a lot of people are foolish today because they feel like they can hide from God. They can't. God knows. And he's just waiting there. He said, all who are, who are heavily laden and burdened, he said, come to me. He said, because my yoke is easy and my burden is what? Light. I want to tell you, I believe there's coming a day when another great period of history will be celebrated. Listen to Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked and beheld a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, Christ's righteousness, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. My prayer today is that you'll submit to your King. His name is Jesus. That you'll turn your life over to Him. And not hesitate. Because we have every right to rejoice. We are clothed in his righteousness. We put on different clothes if you're saved. If you're saved from his wrath. We have the righteousness of Christ. And God sees us that way. The devil tells us, oh, you're not getting any better. You're getting worse. He tells you and he peppers your mind with, you'll never be able to be healed. You know you don't deserve this healing. You know what you just said or what you just thought or whatever the motive may be. And he'll say, you don't deserve it. No, we don't deserve it, to be honest with you at all. We deserve the opposite. But let me tell you, Jesus made us worthy. And it's his worthiness that's imputed and parted to our hearts through his righteousness. Amen. The cross. Even before the cross, Jesus had already endured more than pain than a normal man could bear. He was scourged which was enough to kill most men. His commonly believed that the instrument used for the scourging Jesus was, it was called the cat of nine tails or a, a flag, flagrum. And this was a short whip with metal stones and bone tied into leather thongs. And as they beat him with this instrument of torture, his flesh began to tear and blood began to flow. They stripped him of his clothes and then they put on a scarlet robe on him. They fabricated a crown of thorns. They jammed this thorn onto his head. They put a reed in his hand, represent a scepter. They were mocking him. And then they blasphemously bowed before him and cried, Hail, King of the Jews. They'll bow again one day. And they'll say, Jesus is Lord. They spat on him. They plucked his beard. They grabbed the reed and hit him on the head with, him, with it. And then they forced him to carry the cross to the execution site. It's believed that the cross weighed nearly 150 pounds. And some experts believe that Jesus carried his cross the distance of over two football fields in a weak and tormented state. Once at Calvary, the cross was put on the ground and Jesus was thrown onto the cross. The spikes were approximately seven inches long and three-eighths of an inch in diameter. These spikes were driven into his wrist and through his feet. They took that cross and lifted it up and dropped it into the hole. You know, that was all of this is painful. And at the cross fell down into the hole, no doubt his flesh tore. The position of the naked body held his rib cage in a fixed position. This would have made it extremely difficult to exhale. It would have been impossible for him to take a full breath. He had suffered from the scourging and beatings. The walk with the cross. Jesus was extremely weak and dehydrated. 
He was losing significant amounts of blood. And he suffered for several hours. And after all these things were complete there, he received the vinegar. He said, it's finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. He did all of this so that you and I could be redeemed. You never make it to heaven without Jesus Christ. He is God's plan of of redemption. And we need to know, and we know that's just terrifying to our hearts. And it just, it touches me every time I read that or, or see this. But let me tell you today, I believe the greatest grief that Jesus has. Remember when he wept over Jerusalem? Jesus wept, the shortest scripture in verse, in the scripture. He wept because a lot of people were rejecting. He knows the perfect perfection that we had to have in that sense his righteousness we can't enter in to the presence of god he must be born again remember jesus told nicodemus he must be born again i believe the greatest pain he suffered was knowing that those people would turn away people would reject him and turn away and do you know what we do in a way sometimes when we neglect our relationship with Jesus in a way we kind of say I want to do it on my own I kind of let me have a break here this spiritual life whoo man maybe it has been it's been dry and maybe God is just saying come on back come on back I'm asking you come on back my arms are wide open to you if you come back I receive you unto myself he tells us that today Ephesians 3 it says and this is a prayer I pray every day Pray that our inner man will be strengthened with all power. That we may know how long and wide and high and deep is the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. That we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I want you to know how long and wide and high and deep is the love of Christ. The Apostle Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus. He's yearning. He's saying, I've got to pray for you. I've got to pray for you. Because I want that to come as a revelation to your heart. How much Jesus loves you and loves me. I believe the first greatest commandment is what Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then what does he say? Love your neighbor as yourself. I talked about it. I don't believe you can love people until you know the love of God to your hearts. Until you know how much Jesus loves you. You'll never serve him. That's why I've asked many times, and I pray that prayer, that God would give us a revelation a spirit of revelation, of, of wisdom, that God would reveal himself to us, that we may know Christ better, that we may know that he loves us beyond any measure. And that's why Paul is praying for the church, because we need a revelation of how much Jesus loves us. I believe God does that. Something he wants to do. You know that old song? Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. How much more could he give? A Savior gave us righteousness. He saved us. And he came humbly. When he was being tempted, remember, by Satan... He said, I can call down legions of angels right now and wipe this place out. Remember in the Old Testament, somewhere back there, 
in uh, Exodus and all where some of the people, the earth opened up and the people dropped in. They died because they were disobedient to the Lord. They were rebellious. He could do that right now. But instead, he offers us salvation to be saved from the wrath of God. If we'll open our hearts to him and we'll believe him and we'll be clothed in his righteousness because there ain't nothing good in Jambarpa apart from Jesus Christ. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. That's why Zechariah says, rejoice, shout, thank him, praise him today. And we'll praise him throughout eternity because of what he did. I'll read one thing. We'll close. We'll close. Revelation chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside. And on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. And out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests, to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Who is worthy to open the scrolls? Jesus, the Lamb of God. Blessing and honor and glory, and power, and dominion, all go to Jesus Christ, who is the only one who's worthy. They were looking for it. We have a Savior who is worthy, and he has been parted, imputed that righteousness into my heart, into every believer's heart, covered us 
and the robes of righteousness. He's taken off all that old stuff and given us that new clothing of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. That is worthy of our rejoicing and our praise His holy name. Let's pray together. Father, we glorify you and we praise you. And oh Lord, he would have taken it through eternity for us to fully grasp all of this. But when we see him as he is, face to face, then our eyes will be open to your glory, to your honor. Open our eyes now, dear God, because your glory is all around us and we praise you. But dear God, in the fullness of what we're being prepared for, as we live with Jesus, Throughout eternity, help us to live a lives that truly are worthy of the calling that's upon our hearts and lives. Worthy of your calling, dear God. And remove everything today that is not like Jesus in our hearts. By prune it away, cut it away just like you did with that sake of palm. Clip it back. And that, let new life come forth. And for those maybe that are dry, we ask, Lord, the word says the drought is over. Open our hearts to the deluge of God's spirit and receive because the blessings of God are there for all who will call upon the name of the Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.